Hi, this is John Schlitt, and you're listening to people just like me talk faith and life with Joe Taylor on Faith's Edge. And, and when you bow down to a spirit of fear, God, being the perfect gentleman, stands back and says, okay, I'll let you have it your way. And when you finally have had enough of the devil, you might cry out, Jesus' help. Well, this is going to be an interesting show indeed. Uh, thank you to Mr. John Schlitt for the introduction. John has been a guest on our show a few times. The last time he was kicking off an exciting new project called Union of Sinners and Saints with Whitehearts Billy Smiley. You can hear that conversation at onfaithsedge.com slash 65. That's onfaithsedge.com slash 65. Hi, welcome to the 76th episode of On Faith's Edge. My name is Joe Taylor, recovering atheist and your servant in Jesus Christ. This is your place to hear conversations about God and living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. Today's guest is author, musician, and pastor, Casper McLeod. In Casper's first book and autobiography entitled, Nothing is Impossible, he tells his testimony of turning from glittery rock star to following Christ through his friendship with Phil Kagey. He has played and recorded with musical notables such as Michael Carabell of Santana, the Ringo Starr Band, Eddie Zinn of Foghat, Hall & Oates, Peter Fuller and Jody Davis of the Newsboys, and David Teams. In his second book, What Was I Thinking?, he deals with the spiritual roots of disease and the science of epigenetics, which is the science of how thought affects physiology. His recent project, The Shroud of Turin Speaks for Itself, reached number one on Amazon. We cover a lot of ground in today's conversation. We talk about taking your thoughts captive and, of course, epigenetics. His new musical project, Communion, the influence of Phil Kagey on his music and his faith. We ask him, did Jimi Hendrix really say that Phil Kagey was the greatest guitar player in the world. The Shroud of Turn and Casper's claim that there is scientific proof of its authenticity. We covered so much ground today that I added a special bonus segment found only at onfaithsedge.com 76, where we discuss end time prophecies, aliens, and the King James Bible. I'm really excited to talk to you about Two projects primarily. Well, uh, it'll probably take us into into uh, two or three projects. But you have your new album, Communion, out. You have your book, Unmasking the Future, and you have a new workbook. I understand it's called What Was I Thinking? Is that a is What Was I Thinking a a companion piece to something else you've done? Yeah, the workbook is a companion to the book What Was I Thinking, which is all about um, epigenetics. Uh, epigenetics is the science of how thoughts are created, and as a as a minister, um, I've noticed over the years that you know the, the Lord Jesus says um, quite clearly in Second Corinthians ten five to take every thought captive the obedience of Christ. Well, most people aren't doing that, and most churches aren't even telling you how to do that. So that really was the basis of the book, because um, we were seeing from science. 95%, some of the leading medical uh, universities uh, have, have said this, you know, since the 90s, really. Um, studies are showing that 95% of all sickness and all diseases actually begin in your thought life. And the other 5% is really due to um, your generations, the iniquities and things. So that's really talking about transgenerational epigenetics. Um, and, and then another part of that is research showing that 50% of people um, if you ask, uh, you know, I do this at conferences sometimes, uh, that 50% of people will, will tell you that they're not stressed. And then if you take that 50% that said they're not stressed, you'll you'll find that actually 90% of them are clinically stressed because we've, uh, as a society, have now adapted to, you know, just think it's normal to live in stage two and stage three is stress, but it's not normal. So um, a lot of times I'm kind of asking the question, how is the church impacting the world today? Is in fact the world impacting the church? So um, <laughs> that's really where you know. The, the, so what was I thinking? I've had people write to me that said there was a lady when the book first came out that said uh, um, she she got healed of lupus just reading the book. So that was pretty exciting news. Let's start with what was I thinking? It sounds like it's a piece that the book and the workbook that really digs deep into the science of thought. And where thoughts, uh, where thoughts originate, and biblically, 
what do we do with our thoughts and how uh, how our thoughts affect uh, affect our everyday life? For starters, uh, every thought you have, even the thoughts you're having right now, they have to go into something called the thalamus. And, and that's the information passes um, into a, a kind of like a relay station of the brain. This is the thalamus. It relays information to the cortex where all your memories are kept. And this is really the first place an attitude begins, right? And that's going to determine your, your emotional response back to the, the thalamus. Is good, and that's going to travel to the hypothalamus, which activates the release of chemicals. And that builds your emotional state. So your hypothalamus is... This is the main gland of the limbic system. Um, we've been science they call it, you know, um, the brain of the endocrine system because it, it's basically, you know, everything's got to go through that. So your hypothalamus is going to only respond to your thought life. That's vital. That's massive to understand because it can only produce chemicals in response to what's going on deep within your soul and your spirit. And um, you know, from my perspective, from a, from a biblical perspective, uh, I think, by the way, science. You know, God created science just to show us how glorious He is. Um, ah. I mean, you no, know, really, think about when you go back and you and you study science and where it came from. It, it came from the church. So when you know, like what there's spirits, people are aware of it now. I mean, you know, your 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 mind, your body, your spirit, and a soul. And so there's there's spirits in their talking. I talk about this in, in one of the chapters in the book. And what was I thinking? And um, different brain waves and how they operate and. And the theta brain wave is the spiritual side, and that's where you, know, you can hear from the wrong kingdom, or you can hear from the kingdom of God, or you can have original thought like, you know, you're getting hungry. Um, so all, all those thoughts are going on, right? And and so if the enemy's whispering in your ear, remember those old cartoons where they had the little angel on one shoulder and, and the devil on the other shoulder? Sure, and sure. The devil, go on, do it, you know? And the little angel's on the other side, oh, no, no, don't go there, don't do it. So... um. That's pretty much a way, you know, I mean, symbolic, that's really what's going on. So all that information's got to go um, into the hypothalamus. And you, so your endocrine system triggers your glands and it dictates to each one which secretes the different types of hormones. And that goes directly into your bloodstream and that regulates the body. And then you've got something called the amygdala over here in America. I think you call it um, the amygdala, same thing. Uh, but that's the long, um, the library of all the long-term memory. So... So this is like, for example, okay, so you got, so we've got two guys. So let's say they're, they're two disc jockeys, right? Well-paid, um, well-known disc jockeys, essentially living in the same city and they're driving the same motor car and they get it, like say they're in uh, New York or Los Angeles. Well, let's say Los Angeles, that's probably better, right? And so they, they, um, they're in a traffic jam, right? Because could be Atlanta, I guess. <laughs> All those places that they have, you know, the, the rush hour traffic jam. So <laughs> right. they're in traffic, right? They're driving side by side. Identical cars, identical lives in a sense. You know, they probably both live in, in a house. They're married with, you know, 2.5 children, the white picket fence, the dog in the yard all there. So one of them is stressing out and, he, and he's on the verge of road rage. You know, he's he's, he's freaking out. The other guys are going, wow, traffic jam. I guess I can make some phone calls, find out what my friends are doing this weekend. Maybe, you know, we can get together and hang out or I can listen to, you know, some praise and worship. And maybe there's a really good sermon I could listen to. I mean, he's in total peace and the other guy's freaking out. Why? So it's not the external, you know, circumstances. These are internal things that are triggered by what? Memories. So the guy that's having the road rage has, has, has got a... a triggering memories from something in the past that tells them this is a bad situation. You're going to be late and you, you know, everything's going to fall apart in your life because you're going to be late and in the traffic jam. So you can't always um, control circumstances. You can't always control, you know, situations, but you can control, learn to control, learn to practice the control, how you respond to them. And so as a child of God, we, we want to stay in, in peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. Is it, so, is it really important for Christians to understand their thought process and how the thought, how their thoughts work and what to do with their thoughts? And if, if it is important, why is it important? Well, but the Lord thinks it's important. He talks quite a lot about thoughts. It's, you know, think about that, you know, a little pun intended, right? He, he says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He didn't say take some thoughts. 
or a few thoughts, or most thoughts. He said, take all thoughts captive to be in Christ. Why? Because you, you, thoughts um, come through imaginations, right? And then imaginations turn into to words, and, and you speak things, and then you say things you shouldn't have said, and you're going, oh, gosh, what was it I say that I shouldn't have said that, right? Um, so there's a lot to this. I, I find one of the, the most important parts of this is that in Proverbs 4.20, uh, 22, it's life-changing. Uh, it tells, says for their meditate on these words, th those that find them, their health or their flesh. I looked it up in Amaic and, and, and Hebrew and Greek. Uh, it means everything. So when you allow yourself to think about um, whatever you're allowing yourself to think about, um, if, if you're going down, you know, entertaining poisonous thinking, um, you know, it, it causes uh, the, the wrong chemicals. It, it's like a cyclone of negativity. It, every every thought has to go down a path. Let's make it really simple for everyone. Every thought has to go down a path of either faith or fear. And if you're going down a pathway of fear, it's going to release all the wrong chemicals in your body. It's going to break up. Um, it's going to release too much cortisol. The cortisol is going to break down the T cells, bust up your immune system. And the enemy just basically you know, sets up a situation and stands back and watches you self-implode. But if you go down a, a path of fear, a, a faith, uh, you can release the right chemicals on uh, you know, the healing molecules, and, and, and life is wonderful. We can't control what thoughts come into our head. I think that is a manifestation of things that we can't control, even from even thoughts from possibly the, the, um, the spiritual realm. But what we can do is we can take that thought captive. We can take that, that thought captive and do something with it. I think we have a choice to do something with it. And you, you said that we have two paths, faith or fear. Right. When we choose the fear path, what does the fear, where does the fear path take us? The, the fear path, when you bow down to a spirit of fear, God says in, in um, second. Uh, Timothy 1.7, for God did not give you a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. So fear can be a spirit. And, and when you bow down to a spirit of fear, God being the perfect gentleman stands back and says, okay, I'll let you have it your way. And when you finally have had enough of the devil, you might cry out, you know, Jesus' help. And then he's there in an instant to, to make it right. So you've got to be really careful what you think about. There's, there's great power in the, in the words that we speak. And if you want to know what your life's going to be like next year, listen to what you're saying today. Um, so we've got to be really careful about that because thoughts turn into words and then words have great power and then they cause you to act and say things. And then those actions you know, turn into habits and habits establish your character. And this is why the, the scripture tells us a lot about sowing and reaping. So if you plant you know, bananas, don't expect to get apples. Um, what can we expect from the workbook itself? Some practical advice on how to put... Uh, uh, how to put these concepts into place? Yeah, absolutely. It it gives you the the tools that you can sit there and and work with it and understand um, how precisely to to learn to practice to take control of your thought life. In fact, um, a lot of times in conferences I've done this, and I'll, I'll show you because people will ask me all the, you know one questions like, well, how do, how do I do that? How do I take my thoughts captive? Okay, so here's how we're going to do it, and and I'm going to use you. As the model, so you know, you're going to count backwards from 99 for me, okay? Right. Start counting. 99, 98, 97, 96, 95. No, no. And, and at the same time, I want you to start counting backwards and say the ABCs simultaneously. I can't. Fantastic news. You can't do it. I'm so delighted you can't do that. <laughs> Not do it. <laughs> okay, Casper, has anybody been able to do it? No, and then the reason <laughs> neither can you entertain a godly thought and an ungodly thought at the same time. See, so it says, choose this day who are you going to serve? So this is fantastic news. You can't entertain two thoughts at the same time here. You can only bring... So you get to choose. Like, you get a thought, uh, as you said earlier, a spirit sends you a thought, some demonic, you know, and, and, and today now we've got the technologies, we can talk about that later. But we still, you know, put on the mind of Christ. It says, who's, who can put on the mind of Christ? Well, we've got the mind of Christ, and, and he'll instruct us in all the right things. 
Very intriguing. We really look forward to, to the uh, to checking out the book. What was I thinking in the accompanying workbook? Let's talk about your new project communion. Not only are you an author that digs deep into subjects like uh, the thought process and, and, and where that thought process takes us, but you are an accomplished musician. Uh, your anthology faithfulness, the project right before communion would took us from 1988 to 2016. You've worked with some amazing artists. So tell us before we go into the musical project communion, tell us about some of the artists you've worked with. Uh, you are actually uh, referred to as the next Jimi Hendrix. I was, I was actually, um, recording for Atlantic on my, one of my first albums, Ahmed, I think, wasn't letting me play the way, you know, I play something. He goes, that's fantastic. Now give me 10% of that because we're making a commercial record. So out of frustration, I, I went out into the lobby area uh, where the lounge, you know, for all the artists hanging out. And um, I, before I said something I might regret. Um, so I was just sort of playing my guitar and sitting in the corner. There's another guy over there drinking coffee and reading the newspaper. He saunters over to me and uh, turned out to be Harry Belafonte. He goes, hey, kid, you know, come with me. And he's been to the studio. He's working on this movie called Beat Street. And he tells the engineer, goes, he's got carte blanche, give Casper carte blanche. Whatever he wants to do, just let him play. Turn him loose, you know. And so he's going, go for it, man. You're like the best thing of his since Aldi Miola or something like that, you know. So I'm in there just wailing on my guitar and um, working with this guy, uh, the engineer's name was John Paul. And so it's like two or three days into this, you know, project working on Beat Street with him. And suddenly John Paul said something to me in conversation about when, when yeah, when my dad invented multi-track recording and it was like all the light bulbs just went off like, <laughs> wait a minute, you mean your dad is Les Paul? Back then I just like, you know, got to work with all kinds of um, well-known artists and stuff. And uh, it was an interesting time in my life. So um, my first producer was, the drummer from Santana. Uh, in fact, in my audition, I had um, some of the guys that played with the Rolling Stones and Santana backing me up. So it was uh, interesting times. Wow. So tell us about communion. What can, uh, what can uh, new and old Casper fans, uh, Casper McLeod fans expect from communion? Um, well, communion starts off with a song called in adoration. And um, I actually started writing it. I, I did write the song, but, I was going to originally write it with a friend, Peter Foda, from the Newsboys. Probably he's best known because he was with them 25 years. Um, those, those guys are all good friends. And um, we were going to write the song. And so Peter got a phone call. And by the time he came back, I pretty much wrote the whole thing. So um, we ended up doing the first version of it. And then somebody asked us to, you know, recut it with another producer. Um, so we did. And that went to like number one for, I don't know, some crazy like nine months or something on internet radio. And then the next song is a song called America that um, my friend Trey Smith uh, from God in a Nutshell asked me to write a song for his film on, on the Trump prophecies. And I asked Trey, you know, when do you need it? And he said, yesterday. And I went, why are you doing that to me? <laughs> so, he goes, come on, you can just make up a song. Come on, man, you just do it, you know. Um, so what happened was I was doing a conference where I was playing um, in Colorado Springs with a lot of friends on the prophecy circuit. Um, and I, I walked off stage after I played my last set and the stage manager turned me around, sent me back and said, you know, do something for another three minutes. We're not ready. So the next guest was my friend, Ale Malzuli, the next speaker. And so I walked out and I forgot that was live streaming around the world. There's about a thousand people. And, um, I, for some reason, I just, I hit a cold because I'm trying to think, what am I going to do for three minutes? So I just hit a cold and I started making up a song and I started singing L.A. Mausili's coming to preach like his hair's on fire, which was kind of an inside joke between us and a couple of the ministers. Once he gets going, he's so passionate. Yeah. And uh, so I'm singing the air and then I'm thinking like, as I look, the, those words are leaving my my mouth, I'm thinking, what rhymes with Marzuli? Lord, help. <laughs> and so the next line was, things got might, might get a wee bit unruly. And um, I started, you know, LA talks about ETs and Nephilim and all the weird UFO stuff. And so I put that in and, and then I looked at everyone and said, you know, sing it with me. So about a thousand people are singing in around LA Mazuli is coming to preach with his ears of fire. So after it was over, <laughs> he comes up to me at dinner 
And he goes, he grabs me, he goes, Casper, don't you ever do that to me again, mate. I'm going, what, what? <laughs> he goes, you made me laugh so hard, I nearly couldn't do my presentation. <laughs> so um, I couldn't resist putting that song on the communion at the end. Um, and it, it's got a song called Surrender to All to Jesus. Like, you know, if we would just surrender everything to Jesus, we would start worrying about things. Um, I've got another song on communion that um, I was originally going to do with my friend Tommy James from the Shondells. And um, he was like, uh, I had to finish a record for Sony, so I just ended up doing it on my, on my own. But there's a little clip of us singing the song together in the original form. Um, that's just a song about, you know, I just don't want people to be, there's a great, there's a great deception coming. Uh, the, the scripture tells us there's going to be a great deception because they would not believe the truth. It's Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, that God will allow them to have a great deception, just like you allow people to entertain fear instead of staying in faith. He's not going to force anybody to make a decision. You know, you you got freedom of choice. I think the single is going to be released pretty soon. It's called Won't, Won't Bow Down. And uh, I think that's an important song for us as, as, a, as a people, as a nation, that we, you know, um, we, we think about Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, and they only had a portion of the Holy Scriptures, and yet they knew enough not to bow down to a, um, a false idol. And, and it changed the course of history. They got thrown into a fiery furnace, and the, the gentleman throwing them into the fiery furnace by King Nebuchadnezzar actually died because it was so hot. And here they are tied up, and they, they made a, a declaration to King Nebuchadnezzar. He said, you know, our God, you can't do anything to us unless our God allows it to happen. And we believe our God will preserve us. And even if he doesn't, we're still not bowing down. So there. And, and they, they went into that fire in great faith. Um, I'm sure at the moment they were thrown in, they, they must have had some questions going on, like, really, we're going we're gonna to perish in the fire? And yet they see four figures and not three. They see four figures in the, the blaze, and, and King Nebuchadnezzar calls them out, and they come out, and they don't even smell like smoke, and not one hair of their head is singed. And, and King Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, from now on we're going to serve your God because he's more powerful than the other gods. Through your musical career, all the people you've worked with and all the great musicians that you've worked with, uh, who are some of your musical heroes? Well, I, I, I was fortunate as a teenager that um, as a gentleman came into my life named Phil Keggy, and uh, Phil led me to Christ and he became my mentor. And he's probably the biggest influence, um, truly, in, in a lot of ways. He, he shaped my perceptions of what it means to be um, a Christian musician and, and how to minister like that. I, I used to watch Phil uh, as a young man, uh, as, as a teenager, actually. Uh, and I, I would watch him after a concert and he would meet with people and he would pray with people. And it, to me, he, you know, he was like a, a version of what we should be representing Christ. He was a, an ambassador for Jesus. And he would, he would make each person feel like he'd spend as much time as necessary with them and so, and, and he was always giving things away, you know, here, take a record, you know. Um, so that kind of set me up for this. This is the role model. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you a question about Phil Kagey, because if I have Phil Kagey on the show, I'm not certain he'd, he's, he would answer the question. He's probably sick of hearing it, but I'm going to ask somebody who knows Phil Kagey well. Wait, wait, before you ask me the question, I'm going to give you the answer. No, Jimmy Hendrix did not say why don't you ask Jimmy because uh, he's the greatest guitarist no that never happened what happened was that Bill Abel if I recall correctly the first manager um, that, that misled us all um, <laughs> that's how I met Phil actually he, he came up to me in a club and said hey you're the best thing I've heard since Phil Keggy sign here and then somebody said well why don't you find out why Phil left before you signed that deal and so that's the first time I, I met Phil and Bernadette um, somebody would take me over there for, to meet them and have dinner and that was the first time anybody shared the gospel with me. So um, that never happened. The manager started that rumor, and um, I, I really bothers Phil uh, that you know it's still going on. No matter how many times he's he's told people it never happened, they they keep spreading the same rumor. So he's he's a great musician, but Hendrix didn't hear him, and Hendrix didn't say anything like that to anybody's knowledge. 
I'm sure it'll come up again. But the record straight here, uh, at least to On Faith Said's it, it listeners, that at no point was was uh, was Phil Kagey compared to Jimi Hendrix. So we've covered uh, we've covered what was I thinking and the accompanying workbook. We've covered uh, the new album Communion. I think what I'm most excited to talk to you about is your work with the Shroud of Turin. Tell us about the Shroud of Turin. What is the Shroud of Turin? And uh, and how did you get involved with with the Shroud of Turin? Well, the Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth that covered Christ at the resurrection. And it left a supernatural image of a crucified man that uh, meets all the criteria of what we read in Scripture. And it's only one or two microbes uh, on the fiber. Now, you can't see it from the backside, but it's monochromatic. And we know from science... And all, I mean, this is probably the most uh, examined artifact in the entire you know, world, ancient artifact that's been examined. Um, we know the blood was there first. And then the image came. Now, I, I went to art school and, and I was a professional artist. Uh, I suppose I could say I still am. <laughs> and I don't know of any known way an artist could ever have done something like that. Here's some blood stains. Now we want you to match up the body exactly, right? So... It, it's an incredible piece of information, and amazingly, most people in the church don't know much about it at all, uh, and most people in the world don't know much about it. If you ask a lot of people, they'll, they'll say they've never heard of it, or they'll say, oh, yeah, I, I saw it on you know the History Channel or something, and um, it's, a, it's a medieval forgery. Well, I, I show conclusive proof that it's not a forgery, it's a genuine in, in several of my books on the shroud, um, one of the scientists um, that was at the, uh, the stirrup team, Barry Schwartz, was actually my editor for my book on spiritual encounters with the shroud, which actually came from an interview I did with my friend uh, L.A. Mazzulli on one of his programs. So um, it's really an amazing thing, and I, I think it's one of the reasons it's so important. So we've got this cloth that Barry, uh, they buried the this, you know, Jesus with, they took Jesus Yeshua off the cross and then they wrapped him in a burial cloth. And at the moment of the resurrection, it, it left this image on there. And so it, it makes me wonder, we, because we read scripture, when the, the two disciples ran in the first time, they must have seen this. They must have seen the image there. Um, and what I find even more fascinating is, um, so first of all, we, we've got some, um, We've got a, a full frontal and, 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 and back the dorsal side of the shroud. Most people, if they see it, they just think that it's just the face. But we've got the entire body, the front and the back, recalls it supernaturally on, on a piece of herringbone cloth. Now, you can give somebody the entire American deficit, which is what, how many trillions now? Something like $20 trillion. They couldn't come close to reproducing this. Um, Again, it's supernatural. So I had a, a friend, and, and I would answer your question, how did I get interested in the Shroud? Um, back in the 70s when Phil Keggy had befriended me, um, within that same week, I, I saw a poster for the Shroud of Turin, and it just kind of was mind-boggling when I realized what it was. And I started researching it, um, and I've been researching it ever since. So this is going down quite a, a long path. Um, I had a physician friend, a very good uh, talk friend of mine, back in around 2000, who said if you know they could ever prove the DNA samples, then you know the, the parents' genes that would settle the shroud debate forever. So with all the modern communication technologies we've got available today, um, it's amazing to me how certain information still travels slowly. Uh, you think about I think Sir Winston Churchill said a, a lie can go halfway around the world before the truth can get its trousers on. And, uh, you know, again, you think about it, who's controlling the airwaves and we don't got the prince of this world, the, the devil's, you know, got, he's got some, some work going on here, right? He's, he's interfering and, and, and working with the children of disobedience. So if the gospel accounts are, are absolutely true and, 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 you know, this is interesting um, this past year, we had a very popular motivational type 
guy that you know they don't even want to call a pastor but he's the pastor of a, of a mega church um in atlanta and he said to his congregation now you don't have to believe in the virgin birth to be a christian <laughs> I, I take issue with that now if the gospel accounts of the virgin birth are indeed true that would mean that jesus dna wouldn't have a, a y chromosome right because after all he didn't have a human father this is the holy spirit so he would have two x chromosomes so um, when, when they took the, the DNA samples from the Sardarium of Livy, that was the handkerchief that they covered the face with. And there's no image on that, but the blood stains match perfectly. And we know where that was pretty much the whole time. The shroud has a, an interesting history where it traveled. It disappeared for a little while. It's got involved with a nice Templar. It's, you know, incredible mystery story here. Um, but so if, if Jesus was born fully male, which he was, then that would mean he'd have an SRY gene. And, and so the researchers found that the SRY gene, instead of being in, in the Y chromosome, it was inserted in a location that's normally not found into uh, the X chromosomes, which were imposed from his mother, Mary. This is amazing. So there's, see, there's this um, group of uh, Italian researchers um, that actually helped, uh, set, they invented the standard DNA test for gender, and they, these are the guys that actually did the, the test on this. So they, they were taking the DNA um, analysis of the blood of the shrouded Turin and the, the cloth, the, the sodarium of Olive. And, and so they found, you know, that they discovered the X chromosomes present, but there's no evidence of a Y chromosome. Well, that's what you would expect with a, a signature virgin birth, right? Mm. That makes me very, very happy. Mm. Because it's physical proof for all the skeptics listening out there, all these unbelievers to believe what the Lord Jesus said, and he did. It's 100% true. Um, I mean, more the more archaeologists, the more scientists, you know, go after it, the more they discover the Bible's verbatim. It, it's it's telling the absolute truth. So, no, no, unless, and I told people this in, in, in lectures, you know, unless there was another virgin that gave birth to a man that was crucified, wearing a crown of thorns, pierced in his hide, uh, nails through his hands and feet and over 120 scourge marks that supernaturally left his image on, on a herringbone cloth. I think the evidence speaks for itself. And I think it's really, you know, if you understand the Passover resurrection, then you automatically understand that what Jesus Christ and Nazareth did for you because he was the Passover lamb. And, and so, you know, the other question would be like, well, why, why did he do this? Why did he leave a, a, an image on a cloth that he was resurrected at? We can get really, you know, deep in as we talk about time event horizons and how he transcended, um, just like he did when he went up the mountain with the, the disciples and they saw him talking to Moses and Elijah. Um, he transcended time. You know, Einstein's telling us time and space are the same thing. So, but when we think about it, when you go and buy something, what do you get? You get a receipt, right? I mean, it's going to be, they're going to give you an itemized list of, okay, Joe, you bought this and this and this, you know, you bought this home, maybe you bought a home, and, and now you get the deed, the receipt, and you put it in a safe place. You take it out once in a while, look at it for, wow, I, I paid off this house, you know, this is awesome, I, I own this piece of land here, whatever, right? And I think the Shroud of Turin is like a receipt. My, my friend Russ Peralt's one of the leading experts on the Shroud in America, and we've done a lot of work together over the years, and... Um, so uh, it, it was, you know, Russ is the first time, um, I think, brought my attention to that uh, understanding. And, and so, you know, people think about the shroud, they, they come up with ideas like it's an old relic. You know, I have people say, what are you messing with that old relic for? Why, why are you even bothered with that? Yeah, it's an artifact. It's a symbol. It's a mystery. The world's filled with mysteries, right? But it's really, you know, think about it. It's, it's um, it, it's something that was bought, purchased, redeemed, ransom. I mean, these are the words that should stimulate it here because it's it's a receipt. So if anybody asks you, you know, did did I do this for you? Show them the receipt. In fact, um, I think that's what the apostle was saying when he, um, he went, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all die, but we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. I think you... You said that, uh, and understand understand my my position, uh, uh, I am a recovering atheist, which means I am a rock solid sold out believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, but I didn't come there easily. <laughs> I come, I, I came through a very logical, skeptical, uh, thoughtful process. 
Uh, and when I, when I hear uh, claims like the shroud of turn, uh, some of those old thought processes automatically come back to me. So I'd like to ask you just a couple questions. Hi. Like, like how, do, how do we know the shroud of turn is, it comes from the, the period of time where Jesus, when Jesus died? Well, um, a lot of, again, like I said earlier, it, it's the most um, researched, examined artifact in, in the world, probably. Um, there's chemicals on, on the shroud that prove that it, it could only have been in, in that place in Jerusalem near where he was crucified. The cloth itself comes from that area. Um, so the, the, the evidence is actually overwhelming, the, the physical proof. So that's the, that's interesting because you're not using the well, the standard carbon dating proof, which some might say that. Well, even that I wrote with a friend in in, in England. Um, we we had a book that was a bestseller on on, on Amazon, and we talked about um, how um, they went back and reexamined the fact that okay, well, first of all, let, let's just because somebody might not know the whole story here, and now for the rest of the story, right? Um, <laughs> so when when the Church, the Catholic Church, um, allowed because the, they have the ownership of the shroud at this point. Um, it used to be owned by the Savoy family, but I guess Mr. Savoy, when he passed on, thought his his son was like a playboy and said, "Well, you know, he's going to probably misuse it or cut it up and sell it for samples or something." So he gave it to the Catholic Church. Um, so they gave permission in '78 to you know, take a sample and do a DNA testing, right? So they took one sample from the very worst possible place you could possibly imagine to take a sample, and um, and they cut it into three sections instead of taking three separate samples, which is what they should have been doing, which would have been good science. So this was kind of bad science. And they took the one sample, cut it into three places, and this is like, okay, they took it from the corner, which is where... Uh, for the last couple of centuries, they would pull it out sometimes and they'd have their, um, you know, religious leaders holding it up. So it had lots of people holding that section uh, and show the crowd, here's the supernatural cloth of Christ. So this is the section they cut. Now, the, the shroud, the, the, the devils have tried to get rid of it several times. It's been in two fires. And so in the mid, Middle Ages, it, it, the nuns tried to repair the parts that were burnt. And uh, this is the area that they took the sample from. So that particular part of the cloth was from the Middle Ages. But the Very rest of the cloth was due to smoked. So what you're, what you're saying, and this is what I find interesting. The, first of all, the samples that were, that were carbon dated were uh, found to be from the Middle Ages. And the reason they mm -hmm. were found to be from the Middle Ages is because the that particular part of the of the cloth of the shroud was repaired by nuns because of course it was in a fire so of course that carbon dating would be from the middle ages but the 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 test that you that you um talk about well, is is actual the chemical makeup of the of the shroud itself and the and the trace chemicals that were that are found on the on the shroud could have only come from that time period in that in that particular area that Christ was that Christ was crucified and buried, right? In in, in the nineteen eighty eight carbon dating test on the shroud, um, you know they came up with and said, well, you know it's about thirteen twenty five A.D. Well, that's a problem. It's problematic because we've got the the Hungarian prayer manuscript um, that was dating back to eleven ninety two. So what do you do with that? Well, wait a minute, you know <laughs> there's other. There's a lot of evidence when you when you start unraveling this thing that goes back further and further. So um, it, it's absolutely phenomenal. What you know, it's just an incredible piece of evidence. And um, I, I think the church, you know, if any other religion had something like this, they'd be shown from the rooftops, right? With, with the Christian church, they're not even interested. So the stains, um, the stains just, are without a question human blood stains. Is that what you're, is that what you're the, saying? These, there are AB bloodstains, yeah. It's it's absolutely conclusive proof that it's not paint of any kind, it's it's blood. In fact, I tell people it would have been easier for somebody like Leonardo da Vinci to have 
developed and launched the Hubble spacecraft and for him to come up with the Shroud of Turin. So, um, you know, I put, just putting it in perspective, you know, tell somebody, well, let's get all the greatest minds we have together today, all the greatest geniuses, collect them all. Okay, now I want you to do some kind of advanced technology that won't be known for the next 500 years. Okay, go ahead and do that. Have like, you really? It's kind of ridiculous. Right? Do you have any works, any writings or pieces on the Shroud of Turn that you would recommend, either works that you've done yourself or works that uh, you depend on? Well, I, I, I've looked at a lot of um, research um, from science over the years. It fascinated me. And um, there's, I mean, there's, you know, lots and lots of studies, books out there, there are a thousand pages just chronically, you know, physicians talking about what happens at crucifixion and the proof that this body had been crucified because of the way the, the blood stains were running down the arm and, and the rest of the body. So, I mean, the the, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. Um, you know, if it was some, somebody, some genius that, you know, did this, um, then why didn't he ever do anything else? I mean, this is the only thing he ever did? I think not. Um, some unknown genius came along and said, hey, you know, I'm going to put a supernatural image of Christ and fool everybody. I don't think so. The more you examine this and, and use logic and, and, and look at the evidence, is, you know, it's overwhelming. Don't you find it interesting talking about the, about the crucifixion? And you, you alluded to it earlier, Casper, uh, about the brutality of the crucifixion. And uh, the research that I've done on the crucifixion, this one major point, stands out to me is God, God chose in all of time and history uh, when he would come to this earth and he happened to choose the period of time, the area of the world and the point in history where the government at the time was inflicting the single most ex excruciating, painful, agonizing way to die known to man. The research that I've done shows that shows that never, never has there been prior to that, or never has there been since that a more agonizing pain, painful, torturous way to die than crucifixion. Isn't that amazing that God himself to pay for our sins chose this moment in time and uh, it shows, chose that moment in time that place in history to come and die for our sins. It, it, it is. And uh, it's something that we need to keep in the understanding in the forefront and, you know, and be aware that, um, you know, I, I remember years ago when I was just a baby Christian, I, I, I read the Fox's book of martyrs and it changed my perceptions of reality uh, at that point. Um, and I realized that, um, you know, if you don't have a if find if you don't find the true gospel um, worth living for, you're not going to find the true gospel worth dying for. Um, and so today, I mean, we, you've got people being martyred right now as we're doing this interview. Um, you've got uh, false religious organizations that think that you know um, everybody should convert to their way of thinking, which is how they um, add to their numbers. And the crucifying Christians right now in, in the Middle East, and you know, I mean, they're they're living in the end times right now. So um, this is something we really need to be aware of, and something we need to be praying about, and uh, reaching out and, and helping any way we can. Casper, how did you become a Christian? Um, as I mentioned earlier, my my mentor Phil Keggy had uh, shared the gospel with me, and he. He um, was persistent in, in continuing to befriend me and share the gospel. And one day um, I was on an airplane and I realized um, everything he said was true and that Jesus was real. And I invited him into my my life and and I've never been the change since. I, I've um, it changed me completely. It transformed me right there and, and flying through the heavens. It was pretty dramatic. How how would you how would you compare compare Casper uh, McLeod before becoming a Christian and the change that was made after you became a Christian? How would you how would you describe those two men? Um, 
Well, I, I think I was self-centered. Um, I was, you know, just an artist, rock and roll musician. And uh, after I got born again, got baptized in the Holy Spirit and all the rest of it, um, it, it became, my whole world became Christ-centered. And when when you're Christ-centered and you're in, a, in an atmosphere of, of worshiping the Lord, that's the... Uh, atmosphere for miracles to take place. I've, I've seen blind eyes open. I've seen deaf ears here again. I was back in England. I prayed at the end of a, a, a sermon I, I, I gave and, and a lady that had been deaf for 20 years suddenly got her hearing when I said, in the name of Jesus Christ and Nazareth, deaf ears open. Which is pretty extraordinary when things like that happen. And I think the devil really wants to try to prevent people from learning that they can tap into to the, you know, they can channel the Holy Spirit, right? You talk about the, the New Agers are channeling, the, you know, unclean spirits. I mean, really, the New Age, all it's got to really offer is channeling unclean spirits and nutrition. And it's not so much what you eat, it's what's eating you. Mm. So um, when when you understand that, you know, Jesus said, um, John 14, 12, this and greater things shall you do in my name, right? So how are you going to do anything greater than Jesus did? You can't. But if we were all doing what he said to do, if you love me, keep my commandments. If we did what he said to do, um, and we're ministering, you know, to people, sharing Christ's love, healing the sick, casting out demons in his almighty name, we would see a, a mighty move of the Lord today. But instead, at this point in time, um, which I wrote about in my, my newest book, Unmasking the Future, uh, more people believe in an extraterrestrial savior coming. And uh, there's really like only about, according to the latest Barnapol, there's only like 9% of really Bible-based Christians left in the world. Um, you know, we got we got a lot of guys on uh, Christian television, radio, giving you a feel-good, tickle your ear kind of message today. And that's not what people need. It's in, you know, tune back next week and, you know, so they're trying to feel good again, right? Um, you know, there's, it's, there's it's, so much going on right now. The, the stage set, the world stage is set for, for the return of Christ. And um, we need to be about God's business. It's almost like instead of going to a, to hear a sermon, to hear a, a preaching of the word of God, uh, you're doing nothing but going to a life skills seminar. And there's a, there's a dramatic difference mm -hmm. between hearing the word of God and hearing biblical based preaching. Uh, and there's a big difference between that and a life skills seminar with a couple token scriptures thrown in there. Well, think about it. What's the, the main reason the church is different today than it was in the past? Most churches are not teaching about repentance. What is repentance? It means change the way you think. Think the way God thinks about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it even says in, in, in um, Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive it, and you shall have whatsoever you say. So, you know, the world's ideology is... Uh, Hey, but I'll believe it when I see it, right? Um, but God's saying, no, believe it, and then you'll receive it. It, it turns it the other way. Since uh, since becoming a Christian, have you ever doubted your faith or even the existence of God? No, because I've um, I've seen too many supernatural experiences at this point, and uh, I don't I don't believe that's ever really happened. Um, no, not at all. You know, in fact, you know. I would say this, I would go as far as, um, well, you know, I've got a testimony that's out there somewhere on the internet. I think if you put it in Casper McLeod on YouTube, it'll come up. Uh, TBN is like a 10-minute uh, edited version of it. But in, in 2001, basically, I, I, I dropped dead. And a week after I was ordained, I, I'd been, I, I was playing with the Newsboys at some um, show, um, kind of just guest artist thing. You know, hey, come on up and play with us. And I, I left that evening and um, ended up in hospital in the ER and they told me I was going to die from incurable heart disease. And so my friend Peter Fowler's told me that his dad prayed for a blind guy in Australia and he, he received his sight again. And all of a sudden I realized that, you know, if God's the same yesterday, today and forever, he's still in the miracle business. So I ended up receiving a miracle. I, I basically dropped dead in 2001, a week after I was ordained and, uh, there was a doctor and a, and a nurse there, happy my doctor that was there. Um, and 
you know, confirmed that he didn't have a heartbeat and the pastor cast out a spirit of death. And I came back and I was totally healed. It was incredible. And then the next day I prayed for somebody, got baptized in the Holy mm -hmm. Spirit. And, um, and when I prayed for this woman, it was actually the doctor's mother. Um, it, it was an amazing thing that happened. Um, she was actually from England as well. Um, so kind of more like upper middle class, just kind of a, you know, step up a lip attitude. We, we never show our emotions. And, and so she was really out of character. I started telling her about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I, I put my hand on her shoulder and I prayed for her and, and she suddenly had tears running down her face and she started praising God in an unknown tongue, another language. And, and what I didn't know at the time was that she had like cysts and tumors and things in her breast had vanished out of her body at that moment. And I've seen miraculous things ever since. So the question, no, um, I, I don't doubt it at all. You know, I just, I know God can do anything. Finally, as we wrap up, what would you say to someone that is right on faith's edge about to make that choice to believe or not to believe in God? Well, I would say test the Lord. I'll ask him, um, if you're real, come into my life and, uh, and show it to me, you know, and, and he will, because he's real. I mean, the other side's more real than this side. So if you ask him, um, he will do that. I don't think we can say anything more than that. Casper McLeod, thank you so much for, for being with us today. Uh, the new album is called Communion. We have uh, your new workbook, What Was I Thinking? A companion to your book, What Was I Thinking? You have your, you mentioned your new book. We didn't get into it, but uh, unmasking the future and uh, wow what an interesting conversation on the shroud of turn thank you brother for hanging out with us uh, my my pleasure hope to, to see you again soon Casper's website is the upper room fellowship.org that's the upper room fellowship.org and his books and musical projects can be found in at amazon.com. These links, as well as all of the all the other links in today's show, can be found at onfaithsedge.com slash 76. Again, that's onfaithsedge.com slash 76. Once again, there's a bonus segment found only at onfaithsedge.com slash 76, where we discuss end-time prophecies, aliens, and the King James Bible. Well, that'll wrap up today's show. Thank you to Casper McLeod for being with us, and thank you for listening. You mean a lot to me. And you mean a lot to this show. Remember, God is real. He loves you. And so do I. God bless. Thank you for listening to On Faith's Edge. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Internet Radio, or your favorite podcast app on Android, Apple, or Windows devices. To reach out to Joe or leave comments about the show, visit onfaithsedge.com. You're important to us and we would love to hear from you.